This is Swordplay. Alex, GQ Magazine put the Bible on their list of 21 books you don't have to read. Now, I know you canceled your subscription to GQ after they published that list, right? What's GQ? Is that for people who don't register on the lowest level of IQ? Oh, boy. Here we go. Uh... There, goes, there goes our GQ sponsorship. This is Swordplay. Uh, we are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. And on this episode of Swordplay, we continue our interview with Jimmy Hinton. And I know we started off on a light note. That's because we're about to head off into deep waters again, as uh, in this episode, we seek to get practical about how we can protect the weakest among us. Yeah, we have with us again, Jimmy Hinton. Uh, Jimmy, here out of Pennsylvania, where, where do you do ministry at? I'm at the Somerset Church of Christ in Somerset, Pennsylvania. All right. And uh, remind our audience, you are an independent contractor with GRACE, which is? Uh, that is an acronym for Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. And, Jimmy, you're the, if, I'm, if I remember right, you're the foremost authority on, on the subject of... Um, uh, sexual predators and and especially in the church is that right well one of them uh, okay yeah and i think i think basically it's the the experience of having lived under the same roof as a pedophile and uh, my training and background um, at seminary so um, i've always bucked the system and always hated school but by golly if you go to seminary they're going to make a researcher out of you yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Well, last time, Jimmy, we talked a lot about Second Peter chapter 2, the book of Jude. We brought in some other passages and scriptures from James, from Hebrews, and we were trying to connect the theology and even the uh, sort of course correct some bad theology in order to understand how uh, false teaching is not just about teaching doctrine that's incorrect, it goes with this character profile, and when we start to examine the character profile, we come out with the kind of person that still exists within our congregations today. And so that's where your expertise comes in, helping us make these connections between uh, people who we think on the outside are bearing fruit, they're an example among the sheep, they're spiritual pillars in the church, and yet underneath they're wolves in sheep's clothing, and there are certain things that we have to look for concerning technique and um, opening our eyes to, to the reality of what is around us. So that was a heavy episode, and I appreciated the words that you had there for us. Today, we're going to get more into the idea of uh, practicality. What do we do about this? We hear about these kinds of things within the church, and it can make us angry, it can make us paranoid, it can scare us, it can confuse us. How do we get practical with protecting ourselves, uh, our children, our church members, the most vulnerable among us. And I think to start out, we need to ask the question about church policy and how do most church policies fail to protect the victims and fail to deter the predator? I, I like that you started there uh, with that question. I think that's the right question. Um, because I, I think we need to have a high awareness of our, our weak points. And that's what's driven my research. Uh, in fact, that's what got me into researching pedophiles because I obsessed over the fact that my dad abused victims for over 40 years and every single one of us missed it. There's not a single person at any time where, where we came together as a family or a community and said, my goodness, I wonder if he's abusing kids. Um, so... I think we need to be aware of our blind spots and, and really have much more self-awareness. So, yeah, so where do church policies fail? Um, I think that most, you know, most churches don't even have a protection policy. Uh, at the time of the allegations against my father, uh, we didn't have a policy. We had never had a policy. So that's, uh, that's obviously a, a major issue. Sure. Um, secondly, the ones that do have a policy don't place a strong enough emphasis on prevention. They wrongly assume 
that by having a policy and letting the church know that they take abuse prevention seriously, uh, that this is going to somehow deter abusers and cause them, you know, a, a term that a lot of people are adopting now is this language of opting out. So what they what they say is, we're going to create this um, screening process, and we're going to say it from the pulpit, and we're going to make announcements, and we're going to let people in our congregation know that we take abuse prevention seriously. Uh, well, that's a good thing to do, and I'm not knocking that because I do that myself. Sure. But it's an illusion to think that by doing so, that's going to deter abusers or somehow cause them to opt out of volunteering with kids. It just doesn't work that way. Um, it's a false notion. And you know, I think also that uh, our current policies fail the victims because they allow the very people who abused, raped, and tortured them back into the church. Hmm. Um, and then what's worse, the churches usually dote over over the abusers, and they talk about how wonderful God's grace is, while they're telling the victims at the same time that they're just they're the ones being too unforgiving, they're being bitter. You know, we had talked about that a little bit in the last episode, and so it's incredibly confusing to the victims, and it does nothing to protect past victims and potential future victims. So, um, you know, I, I want people to think about this too. Think about how inadequate our church policies are on pick a topic. Um, it, it doesn't matter what it is. I think our policies are grossly inadequate. And even our policy, which I think is a really good one right now, still is really inadequate in a lot of areas. Uh, we, need to be, we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to be aware of that. But you know, right now, the current trend is um, training on active shooters, right? Because it's this horrific crime that that's taken place in our schools, and we've had several church shootings. And the most uh, notable recent one was the one in Texas, the small Baptist church, where the guy came in and killed. Uh, how many victims were there? It's like twenty some. Do you guys remember? Was that the one in Tennessee or no? Or that Texas? was the one in Texas. It was like 26, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, something like that. And this was a small church, you know, a church of 50-some 50, 50 people, very wow. tiny church. Horrific crime. Uh, we should be angry about that. We should talk about prevention. But the reality is we put all this time, money, and attention into active shooter training, and you're 100 times more likely to be struck by lightning than to have an active shooter come into your church, just speaking hmm. from a statistical standpoint. Sure. Wow. Um, Here's another one. There are 34 church fires per week in the United States. 34 churches burn down every single week in the United States. Let me ask you guys this question. How many churches do you know of who've done a fire drill during Sunday school or worship time? <laughs> Name a single one. We've done one. And when I go and I talk to churches, uh, it doesn't matter how big or small the church is. I cannot name one single church on one single finger who's done a fire drill during a church service. Wow. And yet the reality is churches burn all the time and people get injured all the time from church fires. And so that's, that's, uh, that's a real risk. That's a real threat. But we don't address that in our church policy. Um, so we write these things about active shooters and all these things that that do need written into policy. Don't don't please don't mishear me. They need written into our policy, but the reality is, um, we have other things that uh, that really need to be addressed in our church policy that are legitimate threats, legitimate dangers, and they're hurting a lot of people right now. Sexual abuse being one of those. So, <clears throat> what uh, what should a congregation do it we're i'm a member i'm a i'm a preacher here at davis park uh alex is there at lake phelan we've got members listening across the country what what should churches do what should congregations do with uh known pedophiles and and sexual predators um first of all we need to understand that not all sex offenders are created equal in other words um there are people who carry the designation sex offender. They're registered sex offenders 
who are not pedophiles. They have no attraction to children. That's not why they, they were uh, registered as sex offenders. Uh, we need to dig into people's records, and I want to emphasize this. Never take the word of the sex offender themselves. Never take their word whenever they tell you, if they ever tell you. Because they're probably going <clears> to <throat> try to dismiss it, treat it like a small thing or something. Absolutely, and they'll lie about it, and they'll tell you, um, they'll tell you one incident that happened so far back. And I mean, I can write the script for this. I just, I just I've consulted with enough churches now. I, I can write. I can literally write the script that they're going to tell you. And my goodness, it was thirty years ago, and it was this one incident, and it was all misunderstanding. And she was just borderline on the age of consent, and it wasn't really abuse. It was just um, he was tempted, and he just fell into temptation, and um, it was just that one time, and blah, 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 blah. I can write script for it. Never take their word for it. That's what public records are for. That's why we, we have laws that make records public, so that the general public can go and they can search these public records. Um, do your homework. It's it's it doesn't take that much time or energy to do it. So, with that said, I would say that with known pedophiles, and and by definition, a pedophile is somebody who molests a prepubescent child. This is somebody who's prepubescent, and there's a set of criteria to to meet that designation of a medically defined pedophile. What do we do for them in our congregations? Well, I think most importantly, we give them an opportunity to stand up under their temptation. We tell them that if they're serious about repentance, they'll cut the crap. I hope I can say that on, on, on your podcast. Sure, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> that they'll, they'll cut the crap. They'll cut the internet. They'll get rid of their cell phones. Even if they have a flip phone, they will get rid of it. They'll get a landline. Um... They'll beg on their hands and knees. They'll come to us, the ministers or the elders or whoever it is in your church leadership. They'll come on their hands and knees begging us to keep them away from children. And they'll embrace an adult-only worship setting no matter the size. I'm going to give you guys a guess as to how many pedophiles, when I advise that to churches... For the, for the very small percentage of, of churches who have actually offered this scenario to pedophiles, take a wild guess at how many pedophiles jumped on this. Zero. Correct. <laughs> so that tells me right away that this person's full of it. They're not repentant. They would jump on that opportunity. If, uh, if you have a sex – say that you have another sex addiction. Say that you're a Tiger Woods. Um. You just womanize everybody. You you see a woman, you get all worked up, and you just can't help yourself, and you've got to you've got to have sex with her. Um, we're not going to take Tiger Woods to a to a uh, an adult entertainment bar and have him sit there and say, Tiger, you know what? It's cool as long as you don't touch any of these women. We're going to give you fellowship. We're we're going to surround you. With all these beautiful women, um, but we're just going to keep an eye on you and make sure that you don't actually physically touch any of them. That's a cruel thing to do to somebody who genuinely, if they genuinely have uh, this temptation, that's a cruel thing to do to them. Hmm. Now, to, to flip the script a little bit, what happens is these pedophiles start demanding that you put them in the context of, of worship where you have minors. Now, they won't frame it that way, but they'll say, you don't believe in forgiveness. You don't believe in grace. I've been redeemed. I've been wrestling with this my whole life, and, and now you're going to come back and treat me as a second-class citizen. That's another term that they like to use very often. <laughs> yeah. um, the reality is that even if you're lucky enough and you've got to be extreme, either extremely skilled or extremely lucky for them to not produce a hands-on victim in the church building, you've still granted them access to every single minor in your congregation and their families. You've given them uh, 
unfettered access to them outside of the worship context, you've, you've sat them in the middle of all these children and they're eyeballing them and believe me, they're eyeballing these children. Or they're wow. using technology which keeps advancing and they're taking digital photos or digital videos um, through spy cameras and things like that. I, I consult with churches all the time where uh, that's the case, that's the issue. And they're going home and they're doing Photoshop and they're creating their own child pornography with the pictures of the victim, even though they never physically undressed them, even though they may have never physically touched them, they've produced victims in, in, in a very bizarre way. And uh, the parents don't even know about that. So what they do is they start befriending the families in church because eventually people start letting their guards down. And so churches that write into their policy, well, we're going to inform the church that this person's a registered sex offender. I come back and I say, so what? Give them three years down the road, four years, five years, six years, 10 years, 15 years. You mean to tell me that every single new family that comes into your church or visits your church, you're going to make them aware that this person's a sex offender? Hmm. It's not going to happen. Right. And so these guys will befriend these families outside of church and they're going to target them outside of church. Yeah, they may never create a victim inside of the church building, which I don't even believe that's true, but they're sure creating them outside of the church service, and you've allowed that to happen. Wow. Jimmy, this brought to mind another question. Um, do these guys, um, because of exactly what you're saying, right, um, do they target young couples so that eventually over time when these couples have children that they already have the access in place to that couple's family? Uh, I don't really know, but I, I would imagine that they do uh, if that couple is a vulnerable couple. Okay. So if, you know, if what we talked about in the previous episode, they've been testing – they're testing everybody and they do it constantly. There, there's benign testing – where they're just constantly feeling people out and and really getting a foundation for what individuals believe and think and what they want to believe in people, what they hope to be true about people, um, where they stand on um, levelizing sin, equalizing sin. You know, the whole old cliche, well, a sin is a sin is a sin. It doesn't matter what you've done. Yes, it does. Um, right. The Bible classifies sin all the time. It puts them into categories beginning in Genesis. You have sins that are categorized and, and they're placed into different categories. Um, God does that all the time. So we come back and we have these cliches. Well, sin is a sin is a sin and it doesn't matter. There's no sin worse than the other. They're going to find out really quickly. If you're a young couple who truly believes that, um, they're going to migrate to that couple. And, and uh, This is theory. I, I don't know for sure, but my guess sure. is – yeah, I, I would say that they would befriend uh, naive, vulnerable couples like that so that when they do have children, they've already groomed them to where uh, it's just natural now. Sure. And they know that they're going to be babysitting that that, that couple's child. Uh, let's say that um, maybe uh, the preacher, the one of the elders, uh, deacon, or just one of the members has a suspicion about someone – maybe abusing a child or maybe being a pedophile what what are what are the steps then how how do we what should we do there's a little bit of a tricky you know again it's a it's a multifaceted issue um but people need to understand that they should just assume no matter what your state's laws are at the time because these laws change all the time um you should just assume that if you're in any church leadership position, that you're a mandated reporter. Okay, so mandated reporting, um, you have to meet the threshold of reasonable suspicion. So that's distinguished from suspicion. You can have a suspicion, but that suspicion not be reasonable. You can just have a hunch. Uh, your intuition can be going off and you can just get a weird feeling about somebody. That's not enough to report somebody. You have to have reasonable suspicion in other words, that suspicion, you have to have reasonable cause that this person might be causing harm to, to minor children. 
if you've met that threshold, uh, you should always report that to authorities, whether you have any evidence or not. It's not your job to collect evidence, it's your job to report. Um, so I, I would say that firsthand, take reporting very seriously. Don't hesitate to report. Uh, and people hesitate because they're like, well, what if it's not true? And what if it, you know, what if it's unfounded? My response is great. Uh, if yeah. somebody, you know, if somebody reported me and I had to be interviewed and, and it came back that, you know, uh, it was unfounded. I think we should celebrate that. It's embarrassing. It's, you know, it, not going to lie. It'd be an embarrassing process. But we should celebrate if these allegations are unfounded. Um, but then you have different levels of that. You know, you have things where – I think this is where written policy is extremely important because you have to create certain boundaries where you have tangible things that if somebody's constantly breaking those boundaries – you have to have a step one, step two, step three process where uh, certain things, it's an immediately strike out, you're done. You're out of the church. Um, grabbing somebody on the rear end, that that's a, that's not a strike one, strike two, strike three. That's a first strike, you're out. Hmm. Um, but then you have other things where constant touching, um, putting kids in your lap, those things need to be written into your policy. And you have to actually have steps where if somebody's warned about this, it's written down, it's documented, you know, you have evidence of this so that when it gets to that point, if it, or if it gets to that point where somebody keeps violating boundaries and they do it unapologetically, you can remove that person from the church and you can come back and say, I'm not being unfair. This is the policy that applies to everybody from the highest person in leadership all the way down to um, this young couple who doesn't even have kids yet. The same rules apply to everybody equally, period. And once you have that in, in writing, you know, it, uh, it becomes much easier to protect your children. Now, Jimmy, you've written a policy like this, right? Correct. Is there a way that we can uh, put a link to that for our listeners or is that um... – is that something that needs to be ordered on paper? Uh, I don't mind providing a link for it. What it is is it's, it's a template um, of a policy, and it, it's actually just our church policy where we removed – I removed the names from it. Okay. Um, but but I would just warn with that, you know, put a disclaimer in there that this is not a click-and-print policy. Um there is no such thing as a blanket policy that works for every church. Every church culture differs. Church sizes differ. Church facilities differ. Um, this is just meant to be a foundation where you adapt it and make that work for your for your church culture. So it's sort of a good starting point to work off of. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll give you – at the end, I'll give you another resource uh, for people to actually write policy. Okay, I'll, I'll try to put a link in there and a description to those resources in the podcast description. Okay. I can, I can hear, you know, a Sunday school teacher who, you know, loves kids and, uh, you know, isn't involved in child abuse or anything like that, maybe getting a little upset based on some of the, some of the policy statements, you know, about, um, you know, not... Uh, not touching a child, you know, whatever, patting them on the head or whatever. Is is that – how can we assuage the concerns that maybe a, a Sunday school teacher has about, well, I can't even touch a child, you know? I, you know, they, yeah. they always come yeah. up and hug me or whatever. Yeah, well, that's where uh, context is really important. That's why I say this is not a click-and-print policy. Um, there should be several disclaimers in there, and that's one of them. So we have written in our policy, no adult can have any – no adult can initiate any physical wow. contact with any minor. So in other words, kids come up to us all the time and they – I mean they'll hug you around the waist or around the leg or they'll come up and – you know, kids just do that to adults. Sure. sure. Get away from yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't recommend punting them across the uh, the sanctuary. Um, 
So what do you do with a case like that? Well, number one, that's not a violation of policy because the child was the initiator. The child came up. Mm. They initiated the physical contact. That's fine to give them a hug. Um, you, you don't, like, pat them on the head and push them away. Uh, that's <laughs> fine to hug them. You know, a kid comes up, they want a hug. They initiate the hug. Fine. Uh, within reason, obviously. Um, so I, I had somebody ask the question once. They said, well, can I give a high five? You have in your policy that no adult can initiate any physical contact with any minor. Uh, could I give a high five to somebody? Well, obviously a high five is fine. This was written to guard against these techniques that pedophiles use where they're constantly pulling kids against their will. They're pulling them into their lap. Um, they're giving them these long, gross, disgusting hugs where you know they just look gross. Um, we, read it, we wrote that into policy to guard against that, to protect the children. Keep in mind, too, that you have other children – who have been or currently are being sexually abused. And so for any minor to initiate physical contact with them and pull them in, that just tells that child that whether you like it or not, um, you need to just deal with it. And so we're, we're teaching children, we're training children by doing that, that it's not okay to tell somebody. If you're uncomfortable with the hug... You know, even if it's Aunt Susie who comes in and kisses the kid on the cheek, what do we say? Well, that's your Aunt Susie. Um, you just need to be fine with it. That's not what we teach. You know, I come back and I teach kids, if somebody makes you uncomfortable, you let us know. You let another adult know and you tell them, this person's making me uncomfortable and here's why. And we're going to correct that immediately. I'm not talking a week down the road. I mean, immediately we're going to correct that issue. But it's important to write that into policy. Um, you know, no initiation of physical contact of any adult with any minor. Now, that works for my church culture. We're a small church. I was at a large church of over a thousand members and they said, this won't work for us. They said, we have um, low-functioning autistic kids that need physical stimulation or else they're just going to go uh, they're going to they're, they're going to be understimulated and they're going to be running all through the building they're going to have meltdowns and so we need to give them that physical stimulation so they wrote into their policy uh, that there there's kind of an exception clause mm. and and even within within that and it was written really well but they said special needs uh, people who need physical stimulation, here's what's acceptable. Here's what falls within uh, the boundaries of, of acceptable physical contact. That's written into their policy. Wow, that's really practical, Jimmy. I appreciate all those different things because this is such a heavy topic that to me, I almost feel paralyzed sometimes where like, I don't know where to start. I don't know where to begin. Yeah, And yeah. these are all doable things. These are things that can be implemented and put out right away. I mean, how hard is it to type something up and print it out and say, here, guys, this is how we're going to start and we're going to make adjustments as necessary, but we want everyone to be on the same page. I mean, that's not hard. That, no, that's that. right. That's right. Yeah, and even enforcing your policy is not that hard. Um, it shouldn't be this complex thing where it it's so complex that you don't have a clue what your policy even says. You don't even have a clue what's written in it. It shouldn't be that complex. It's really not that difficult to, to create a safe uh, environment, to create a culture of uh, protection for your minors. You know, we should make it very simple. Yeah. But practical too. That's right. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. Uh, I was just going to say another thing on like practical policy. Um, sometimes there are small group uh, Bible studies or accountability groups or accountability partners. And there's even a growing uh, use of a sort of account accountability group called Celebrate Recovery that the Churches of Christ are using uh, across the nation. And sometimes in that setting, you might get somebody there who will openly confess to child to being attracted to children um, 
Now it sounds like is that um, is there some sort of weird like reverse psychology thing going on in that where like they would openly confess to, to doing that? Uh, very well could be there. Um, there's a book called uh, the Stop Child Molestation book by uh, it's by uh, Gene Abel. Dr. Gene Abel's uh, and his wife. Um, I can't remember her name right off the top of my head. But they co-authored this book uh, back in the 90s. And he had done a really huge, important study. And this should make us very alarmed. But uh, basically he said, we search for people who have attraction to minors, um, prepubescent minors, but who have never offended. And so he said in a city of 6 million, 7 million people, we advertised in newspapers. We, I mean, this was a big deal. They made a big deal out of it, very well-funded. And they said, we've never studied this class of people before that have an attraction to prepubescent minors but have never acted on that. Um, they've never created a hands-on victim. So... They do the study and they, they wind up with uh, something like 300 subjects. And so they begin the, the interviewing process. And at the end of that, he came back and he said, we had to reject every single one of them. He said 100% of them had actually created hands-on victims. Uh, after we interviewed them, we, we learned that they actually all had hands-on victims. Wow. And he said what they were were pedophiles in denial. So – uh, for example, one guy said, well, I never sexually abused a child because um, – I forget what the example was, but it was something like uh, as he was molesting her, uh, this little child didn't scream. And so in his mind, he had never produced a victim. You know, The way, the way it was worded, he didn't feel like he had ever uh, created a victim. Wow. So uh, what, what Gene Abel concluded in that study was – if there's a class of people who are pedophiles who who struggle with um, attraction to prepubescent minors, but who have never acted on that, uh, we're unaware of that person. Okay. So, uh, right away, and he's not the only study who uh, who validates that. There are a lot of good studies out there that uh, that demonstrate that. So. Right away, when I hear somebody talk about uh, attraction to minors and they've never acted on it. Uh, I'm not saying that they're lying, but I'm very suspect. suspect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't know what the reason is for, for people uh, disclosing that. My guess is that they're feeling you out. That's part of that testing process. They want to see how you respond. Are you empathetic or do you actually start asking really hard questions? My advice is the first thing you start doing is you ask very specific questions and say, well, you know, ex explain that. You know what does that what does that look like when you're attracted to kids? Uh, walk me through that process. Hmm. Um, ask point blank, not that you not that you're always going to get an honest answer. Sure. But ask them, do they look at child pornography? Um, what does that look like? You tell me that you're attracted to children. What does that look like? Walk me through a typical day. And just ask that open-ended question and see how they respond. Does that make them uncomfortable? Um, do they avoid that question? That's cause for alarm. I mean big cause for alarm. So, yeah, I, I would say it just depends. Okay. Uh, if they molested, if they, if they confessed to molesting a child, the very first thing that they need to do is turn themselves in. Um, and if they won't, then we, we need to be the ones to turn them in. As mandated right. reporters, we have to turn them in. To not report it is like hearing somebody confess to a felony homicide that happened 10 years ago, but now all of a sudden they've, they've met Jesus and they've seen the light of day, and uh, they won't ever do it again. Nobody in their right mind would fail to report a homicide that somebody confessed to 10 years ago. And, and so we need to remind people these are felony offenses. In all 50 states, molestation of a minor is a felony offense. Right. Every... every uh Sunday school teacher here at Davis Park has to, we require a background check. Um, is it possible for background checks to miss 
violations in the past to miss, um, you know, the child, uh, child sex predator? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, first of all, criminal background checks only catch people who, <clears throat> who've been caught, who have a criminal right. background. The vast majority of, uh, of sex offenders will never get caught. So, yeah, you're you're only catching, <clears throat> excuse me, you're only catching what people have been convicted of, and even that, it, it's a very faulty system. Um, like the state of Pennsylvania, for example, we only require volunteers a, a criminal, a Pennsylvania state criminal background check. So only crimes that happened in the state of Pennsylvania, and a child abuse clearance for the state of Pennsylvania. So hmm. um, we don't have a national FBI criminal background check that's required of volunteers in the state of Pennsylvania. So anybody who say that they do have a conviction the next state over in Ohio, that's not going to show up. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, you know, we kind of are moving in from church policy to sort of the legal aspect of what's involved here. And I'm just wondering, Jimmy, in your experience, how likely will someone who has been reported to be suspected of, of pedophile activity, how often will they actually get prosecuted? What would be the standard of evidence for conviction? And if there's an investigation that goes on that doesn't lead to anything because of a lack of evidence, um, Will that show up on any kind of record for churches to consider when choosing, you know, volunteers and teachers? <clears throat> Here's where I'm really going to depress uh, you and your audience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so <clears throat> Gene Abel, who I referenced before, he estimates that for every single time that a child molester actually produces a hands-on victim, so they're actually physically assaulting a child— for every single time that they do that, there's less than a 3% chance that they're ever going to get caught. So um, if, if you think about my dad who did that for 40-plus years, who had potentially hundreds of victims, whom he abused many of those uh, children hundreds of times each, you're talking thousands if not tens of thousands of times that he – actually produced hands-on victims, physically assaulted these children, he operated at a 100% success rate for over 40 years. Wow. So if, if we think about it in terms of that, and he's just your average, he's your average pedophile. So for the ones who actually uh, do get reported, which is a very small percentage, of those people who get reported, I forget what the conviction uh, percentages, but it's uh, I think it's in the single digits. It's a very small percentage of those people who actually uh, have reports that are founded, and then uh, and then they get a conviction out of it. So the numbers are very very small. Um, as far as the standard of evidence for conviction, I'm not really sure because that's not my area, and that changes from state to state. Sure. Uh, so what do they look at where they actually? get a conviction out of somebody, I'm not sure, which is a very good reason why churches should never investigate allegations of abuse themselves. They should never internally investigate. It's not our job. Our job is to report, and that's it. It's not to ask. Uh, one of the worst things that a church can do is to ask an alleged abuser, did you really do this? It's one of the absolute worst things that we can do because they're, they're going to deny it, first of all. Second of all, if uh, those same people actually do report it, you've given this person time to really think about it and, and create all kinds of scenarios where they can talk their way out of it. Wow. So churches need to report suspicion right i mean yeah reasonable suspicion reasonable suspicion yeah how does a person find because uh, you talked about intuition on the last episode like if a person has an intuitive suspicion how does that person find 
uh, a place of of peace because just speaking for myself i mean that can like sort of be with you it's like it's like it like you're on edge for a really long time because you know what are you going to do you don't have evidence you just have an intuition yeah i think that's where um one one of the things that really bothers me with the way we currently train people is that we we treat this as if reporting is your only option it, it's it's like saying man if if somebody's a really bad driver if they're on the road and or say that you're riding with somebody in a car and they're just acting like idiots they're driving like idiots they're they're driving recklessly um you have other options than picking up the phone and calling the police. Uh, one of them is to reprimand the, the person who's driving like a fool and tell them, you're going to kill us. Um, intervention is important. God has given us all these resources to be able to uh, step in. And when we see somebody who's who's acting foolishly, who's crossing boundaries, who's crossing physical boundaries with kids, who's saying things that are um, inappropriate, Who's, you know, they're behaving inappropriately. They're they're speaking inappropriately. Uh, they're having physical contact when they shouldn't be having physical contact. It's not a reportable incident at that point. That's not something that's reportable. Everything that they've done is legal, but clearly they're crossing all kinds of boundaries. Um, we shouldn't twiddle our thumbs and say we're going to wait until they actually cross that threshold of reasonable suspicion or then we'll be able to call the call the police and report them we can step in we can remove people from volunteer positions and that's again where written policy is vital it's absolutely vital because it ha- you have to have tangible things that are written into that policy that are, are that are clear boundaries that are laid out and you say if you cross these boundaries then x is going to happen this is the result of crossing this boundary and once we do that, we, we build a culture where we're able to intervene on behalf of the children. So it's it's not just saying, well, I have this gut feeling and, you know, this guy creeps me out. It's I have a gut feeling, and so I noticed that he was putting these kids in his lap. Or he kept tussling the hair on this little girl, and I noticed that she was really uncomfortable with it, but he kept doing it anyway. Um, or I noticed that we asked him – three different times to stop doing X behavior and he kept doing it anyway. That gives you something tangible where you can intervene and you can say, you know what, bud, uh, you're done volunteering with kids and here's why. Right. I think that's empowering. I think that gives the average member of a congregation um, something that they can actually do. They can say, hey, church leaders, here's our policy. Here's this guy who keeps you know, grabbing children and, and coming up from behind and throwing them in the air. And, you know, the the child's not liking it. They didn't ask the parents. Uh, they're crossing these boundaries. Um, now you know, here's our policy. Are we going to implement the policy? I feel it, like that gives the person something to do that they can feel like they can, they can, they can help. I think it's important to, to recognize this too. Um, even if that person is, say that they're not, a pedophile uh say that that person is they just grew up in a home where you grab kids from behind and you throw them up in the air and you think that's funny um but they're not a sexual predator it doesn't matter the point is you're crossing physical boundaries that uh, it's not okay to cross those boundaries and so we're not saying by crossing these physical boundaries that you're now labeled as, as, as a potential sex offender what we're saying is we have a crystal clear policy with crystal clear boundaries, and if anybody violates these boundaries, and it doesn't matter who you are, there are going to be certain steps that need to be taken, and if, if those steps are met out and you continue to do it, um, then we have to, uh, we have to create a, a, some sort of a penalty that keeps you from violating the, uh, these boundaries any further. And if that means removing you from the church— um, then that means removing you from the church. We're still not saying that you're you're a child predator, but we're saying that you you're being defiant and you keep crossing these boundaries and it's not okay. It's not okay for anybody to cross those boundaries, but we have to know what those boundaries are. Sure, sure. 
Um, here in Modesto, we've got a, a church where they have, uh, there's been two former pastors who are alleged to have sexually abused kids in the youth group 30, 40 years ago. And um, again, the allegations are leaders asked them to cover it up. Um, I know you're familiar with the uh, Jordan Baird, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Manassas megachurch youth pastor who was convicted, I think, earlier this year. Yeah, that was this year. Yeah. Um, Bill Hybels was in the news here recently with allegations. Mm-hmm. Um, speak to the, the preachers, the pastors, the ministers, the leaders. Um, how can we protect our own soul to ensure that we don't become the next predator or another predator? Well, I think the biggest thing, again, is um, you have to build an accountability into into your ministry and into your life and into your home. Um, none of us, none of us should be exempt from certain rules of, of behavior, rules of conduct. And so just because we're the preacher doesn't mean that we can make exceptions to our policy. Again, you go back to policy. Uh, part of our policy is we're not allowed to give any minors uh, a ride like we have a very clear laid out policy for transportation um there are no exceptions i can't come back and say well you know what uh this parent called and was in a bind which has happened by the way where a parent calls and says hey something came up and i can't start my car my car won't start could you pick my could you pick my daughter or my son up and give them a ride to uh, their sports event or whatever it is? The answer is no. Uh, we have a very clear policy. And so what I did is I, I brought out the policy and I said, here's our policy. Um, here's what needs to happen uh, to get your child a ride. And so it took, you know, it took a little bit of work and took a lot of phone calls. But long story short, we were able to get her daughter a ride uh, to where her daughter needed to go. And I was actually one who did the transportation, but we did it within uh, the confines of our church policy. So there are no exceptions. And if you see if you see church leaders who are um, crossing boundaries um, and they excuse it away, that's never okay. Hmm. And, and so I, I think, how do we protect ourselves? I think... Again, write things into policy and build in accountability where uh, we're not above we're not above the law, so to speak. That reminds me almost of First uh, Timothy chapter five about not showing partiality to uh, even leaders and to elders. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I like the uh, practical elements that you've been bringing into this. Um, I know that there are just some things that stick with people. And, and for me, I'm a numbers guy. I like statistics. Um, yeah. the, the numbers, when I hear them and they're powerful, they just stick with me. And so I want to offer our audience some of the statistics that um, you've come across through your research. Uh, like, for instance, what percentage of an average congregation has experienced some form of sexual abuse as a child? Yeah, this is a this is a conservative number. So brace yourself because the number's high. And it's somewhere right around the 40% mark. 40% of any given congregation and that's a congregation of it, it could be 15 people or it could be 15,000 people. It could be rural or it could be urban, doesn't matter. Uh it could be denominational or non-denominational, it does not matter. Uh, Catholic or Protestant, doesn't matter. 40%, a conservative number is 40% of the people sitting in your pews currently have been or are being abused as uh, as minors, sexually abused. That's just sexual abuse. That doesn't even get into domestic violence and neglect and there are so many forms of abuse. So when we're standing in the pulpit on Sunday or... I guess for me, you know, we're a house church right now. When I'm looking at people around the dining table, 40% of those people have had some sort of sexual abuse in their childhood. Yes. Wow. 
some of these may be difficult or maybe you can't answer, but, um, and I mentioned several cases just a moment ago, what percentage of those in positions of church leadership are um, sexual predators? Uh, we don't really know. Um, there are different studies that are out there, um, and the numbers are kind of all over the board. So you have some that show 60%, uh, some that show up to 75%. Uh, we don't really know because a couple of reasons. One, uh, like I mentioned before, abusers just don't get caught. Hmm. Uh, very few of them get caught. So with that said, think about the news, uh, especially recently, all these high-profile cases that are coming out. Think of all these guys that are uh, coming out of the woodwork who are being accused uh, of sexual misconduct, whether it's with minors, and most of them are with minors. Um, but you look at that and look at the number of people who are getting caught and think about that in terms of percentages. The, you know that the vast majority of people will never get caught, and you know that of the people who do get caught – the vast majority of them will never come to conviction. And so if you step back from that for a minute, you realize there are a lot of people in church leadership that are currently abusing uh, minor, both minors and, and adult uh, victims. So my experience has been when I consult with churches, um, I, to be honest, I'm not real good at tracking statistics, but um, – but it's somewhere around 80 – I would estimate between 80 to 85 uh, percent of the allegations of abuse have been church leaders. So in, in other words, when, when we get a phone call, when I get a phone call and somebody says, hey, we have this incident of abuse and we don't have a clue how to navigate this. Uh, when I start asking questions, I find out that it's uh, somebody who's in church leadership, whether it's a paid position or a volunteer position. Um, I define that as church leadership. So <clears throat> if you're a Sunday school teacher, you're in a leadership role. Hmm. And when you consult with churches, is it mostly congregations in the Church of Christ? Uh, typically, yeah. And I think that's just because... Um, just probably where we're coming from. Yeah, probably publicity uh, part of it. You know, articles that have appeared in Christian Chronicle and and things like that. Sure. Um, people in the Church of Christ circles, you know, they know who I am, and, and the, uh, they're pretty quick to call. The reason I mention that is because uh, I think because of media, we have this misunderstanding that uh, the pedophiles those are just the priests in the Catholic Church. Well, right. that's not the case at all. No. No. Nope, there is no discriminator. Uh, Jimmy, what role do you think pornography plays in the the lives of these pedophiles? I think it plays a very important role. Um, I think the question at hand is whether pornography causes pedophilia. Um, I'm not comfortable saying that. Um Though I think there there is some pretty good research that will back that in some instances, but I will say this about pornography: that if you are a, if you are a pedophile, hundred um, percent of the time, you're deeply engrossed in pornography. And there are tons and tons and tons of studies that back this up. Uh, this is not just hypothetical, uh, being overreactive. Um, it's well known that if if uh, if you're a pedophile, you're deeply engrossed in pornography. What's troubling is uh, the types of genres of pornography that are being produced. It's getting more and more graphic. It's getting more and more bizarre. You have more and more fetishes. And uh, I would say coincidentally, the number one predictor of recidivism, in other words, the likelihood that somebody who's been – they've been convicted – They've been released from prison, and they're going to wind up back in prison. The number one predictor of that is the number of sexual paraphilias that that, that sex offender has. Mm. So uh, if, if you look at the list of paraphilias, just do a Google search on it, and you'll find 
there are dozens and dozens of paraphilias, uh, and some of these are really bizarre sexual paraphilias, and that list keeps growing. And so just when you think you've heard it all, um, <laughs> something more bizarre and more twisted and more strange comes out. But it's not just that people are f sexually fantasizing about this. It's that there are uh, porn producers who are actually producing these genres of pornography because it's a supply and demand world. Sure. Now, Jimmy, I don't know. You might not know this, but my wife um... – she has a law degree, and so she was a practicing lawyer for a few years, and she worked in the district attorney's office at a couple different places that we lived. And um, I can't tell you which office, but she specifically was assigned to work in the division of uh, child sex crimes uh, for a certain period of time. And in that division, she had access to certain studies that were important to inform the attorneys of what they're dealing with. And one of those studies was, it was a correlative study because like you said, it's hard to say what direct role pornography plays right. in pedophilia. But there was a correlative study that showed how the uh, rise in access to the internet, to the increase of pornographic sites on the internet, you know, starting in the 90s, uh, really ramping up in the early 2000s, they have charts that show for that region that she was working in how child sex crimes follows that trend line, the same trend line for the rise in pornography and access to pornography. Yes. Follows the trend line for child sex crimes committed in that area. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and I, I, I think... You know, again, uh, all these issues are complex, but I think part of it is accessibility. You know, we have uh, in the last, what is it, not even 10 years, it's not even 10 years now uh, where smartphones have taken off. Right. You know, uh, man, six years ago, I still had a flip phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't wrap my mind around that. Um, the accessibility to free unhindered unfettered access to to pornography um to all these apps the the secret apps now uh if you just type in uh whether you have an iphone or android uh go to the play store or go to uh, the the app store and just type in secret apps look at the number of apps that come up that are intentionally designed for hiding pictures, hiding photographs, uh, uh, videos, um, text messages, you know, calculator apps. It looks like a calculator. It works like a calculator. But if you type in a certain code, it unlocks a vault where it hides all your secret uh, videos and pictures. I mean, kids, kids have access to this stuff. And this stuff just keeps growing and growing and growing. And, uh, you know, we've just opened up a window, not just with pornography, but uh, with communication. We've opened up a window into into a dark, dark realm, and uh, people are exploiting it all the time. We're uh, kind of winding down here. Let's talk resources for uh, a minute. You mentioned Gene Abel's book, the Stop, um, the Stop Child Molestation yep. book. Yep. Um, any other books that you would recommend for our listeners to help them learn more about this, guide the church through these uh, treacherous waters? Yeah, I would say probably at the top of that list is Anna Salter's book. And it's a very long title, so it's probably best if you just look for her name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the title of the book is Predators, and the subtitle is Pedophiles, Rapists, and other sex offenders, who they are, how they operate, and how we can protect ourselves and our children. Uh, All right. That book is a must-read for anybody, whether you're in church leadership or whether you're just a concerned parent. That's a must-read. Um, so we got Dr. Gene Abel, Dr. Anna Salter... And we'll, we'll put links to these in the uh, episode description of the podcast as well. Uh, what other books? Uh, I mentioned about policy. 
um, Boz Tvijan uh, and Shira Berkovitz, they wrote a book called The Child Safeguarding Guide for Churches and Ministries. And that was just published oh, a handful of months ago. That was like late uh, 2017 that was published. I just ordered that one. So, uh, yeah, I'll put that link as well so you can get like an Amazon link or something so you can check it out. Those yeah, are so hard names to pronounce. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so so Boz is um, – he's the executive director and, and founder of uh, Grace that I, work, okay. that I work with. So Boz is uh, – he's the third eldest grandson to Billy Graham and uh, he just really – really is is a good advocate and just he knows this culture really well uh, he knows the subject really well and uh, this book is a it's a must read so if you're thinking about policy which you should be this is a very good guideline and it was specifically written for churches that don't have a church policy they don't know where to start they they don't know what to include uh, this is specifically written for for that audience what about uh, websites? Um, man, websites, uh, again, I would point you to uh, Grace. That's netgrace.org. Um, there's my website where I frequently blog. Uh, we have our podcast that, that I do with my mom. That's just my name, jimmyhinton.org. Um, no, I'll try to think off the top of my head. Um, other websites that... that have some free resources. There's Darkness to Light. Uh, they're probably more, better known. Um, there's not a ton of them. That's why I'm trying to have a hard, I'm having a hard time here thinking about them off the top of my head. There's not just a ton of resources out there. It's pretty limited. Well, you've you've already pointed us in good direction of uh, of several. So, um, well, I'll be sure to put those in the episode description. Nick, you have any other questions? Uh, I guess just for clarification, you work primarily with um, male uh, sexual predators, um, and, and I know a lot of your research is based on your own experience with your with your father. But um, just in case anyone was wondering, is do you know the ratio of uh, male to female predators? And um, I know yeah. ma- males yeah. are more more uh, likely to offend. but uh. Yeah, so that's actually laid out in uh, Gene Abel's book, uh, the Stop Child Molestation book, and he, he estimates, and this is based on his study as well as others combined, but uh, about 1 in 20 adult males are child sexual predators. And for females, it's about 1 in 3,000. Well... And so if, uh, the FBI also estimates that for every square mile, for every one square mile in the United States, there's a child sexual predator. Wrap your mind around that for a second. Hmm. Man. So – and then you consider how many victims they have. The average number of victims before they get caught is around 150. And again, that's if they ever get caught. Um, you're talking victims in the, in the millions – that are being abused every single day right here in the United States. I guess that's how you get that 40% number of your congregation. Yeah, that's based off um, – there are several studies, and I, I could give you uh, those links as well. Uh, I had one last question that I was wondering. Do, do these pedophiles ever masquerade as being victims themselves? Uh, almost a hundred percent of the time, hmm. and so that's why we have uh, the assumption that a lot of people have is, well, my goodness, um, this person's an abuser; they must have been abused themselves as a kid. And so, uh, the reason the reason they say that is twofold. One is that when they go to prison, um, they're deathly afraid of all the horror stories that you hear about. That's a legitimate fear. Um, so these guys want to want to immediately start garnering sympathy from other inmates. 
And so if they're outed that, that they're a sex offender, they always lie about their crimes, by the way, when they go to prison. They lie about why they're in prison, and for good reason. Um, you know, they're yeah. trying to protect themselves. But if they're outed, they, they always talk about how they were abused as a kid themselves. Um, I'd say 100% of the time. The reality is that number is somewhere closer to about 20%. And uh, there's another famous study. It's called the Butner study. And this was done in a prison, and, and they threatened them with lie detector tests. And that dropped the number from, like, almost 100% down to, um, I don't know, something like 60 or 50%. Then they actually did lie detector tests, and, you know, that number jumped all over. Um there's just a lot of research that shows these guys aren't actual uh, victims of, of abuse. So that could be part of the facade that they build to deter suspicion. Yeah, yeah, I I think so. Absolutely. Right. Well, Nick, what are you taking away today? Oh, man. the That 40% number, um, that two out of every five members of, of any given congregation have experienced this, this kind of trauma. It's, wow, it's, it's, that's impacting. Yeah, it really is. I know for me, uh, I guess I'm taking away the importance of written policy and the need to have those specific boundaries communicated. And it doesn't have to be complicated, and it's not hard, and we just need to let people know that there are things that they can do, that they can be empowered, that they can have as tools to deter uh, not just predators, but just to deter things that are inappropriate and to keep people uh, to keep people safe, to protect our young ones and our most vulnerable in the congregation. Um, I'm going to start working on that church policy. We want to thank our guest. He's uh, Jimmy Hinton. And um, Jimmy, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Jimmy, uh, your brother in Christ, we appreciate your work, appreciate your ministry, and all that you've done uh, with the experience that you've gone through. So we're going to put links up to those books, to your website and resources. And as always, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, be sure to, to like it on iTunes or Google Play, write a review, share it, repost it on social media. Uh, this is helpful information. This is information that needs to be talked about. So even if uh, you don't uh, repost all our episodes, repost this episode. Put this on your Facebook, Twitter, and get the word out. Well, Nick, any other thoughts? Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's another episode of Swordblade. Swordblade.